Hi, this is the American Psychological Association's Division 15 podcast series on emerging research in educational psychology. My name is Jeff Green. Thanks for joining us. So throughout the 2010s, there was this really robust and vibrant question that perplexed professors, government officials, and comedians alike. Is a hot dog a sandwich? What's interesting about that question is how often people think the answer is obvious, and equally how often people's obvious answers differ from one another. Some people have a very narrow definition of what a sandwich is, which excludes hot dogs, whereas others have a very broad definition that definitely includes hot dogs and many other foods. What people came to realize is that we don't really have a good understanding of all the things that make a sandwich a sandwich. So we have trouble deciding if hot dogs should be included or not. I'd argue we have a similar challenge with the idea of metacognition. Lots of people have a definition for metacognition, but those definitions can vary widely with some very narrow and others very broad. Now, I doubt anyone would say a hot dog is metacognition, but people have certainly tried to include lots and lots of things in metacognition, perhaps because we don't quite yet understand what metacognition is. My guest today, Dr. Deanna Kuhn, has spent much of her career trying to figure out what metacognition is, and she has some novel ideas about what it can or should include. I'm really excited to talk to her today about those ideas. Dr. Deanna Kuhn is a professor of psychology and education at Columbia University Teachers College. She is a developmental, cognitive, and educational psychologist and a member of the National Academy of Education. Her primary concern is with how best to educate students for their adult roles in the workplace and in their personal lives as lifelong learners and as citizens. Her work has been published widely in outlets ranging from Psychological Review to Harvard Educational Review. Her books include Education for Thinking, The Skills of Argument, The Development of Scientific Thinking Skills, Argue With Me, Argument as a Path to Developing Students' Thinking and Writing, and most recently, a book written directly to teens entitled Building Our Best Future, Thinking Critically About Ourselves and Our World. Today, we're talking about Dr. Kuhn's 2022 article in Educational Psychologist entitled Metacognition Matters in Many Ways. Deanna, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Jeff. It's my pleasure. So let's start here. In your article, you discuss how there's lots of definitions and conceptualizations of metacognition, with one of the most common colloquial definitions being that metacognition is thinking about thinking. How would you define metacognition? I'm going to define metacognition as managing one's own thinking. Mm. And that'll become clearer as we talk a little bit. But let me say first that I'm really pleased to have this opportunity to talk because I'm now at the stage of a research career of looking back and reflecting on the many different topics I've engaged with Mm -hmm. and synthesizing, I guess we call it, uh, pondering how it all fits together. And in doing that, I was struck to find that metacognition figures importantly in just about all the diverse topics I studied. So in some sense, I wrote the article for myself, trying to get some insight and synthesis, but then I thought there was a message there for others, so it might be worth writing more formally, because of course a risk exists that if metacognition is everywhere and explains everything, then the risk is maybe it explains nothing. So Mm -hmm. I thought it was a question worth asking. And I end up with the answer that I'll try to 
explain, which is basically no, not everything is metacognition. I certainly concur with your and the most popular definition of thinking about thinking, but there's been some confusion that I think needs to get clarified. Mm -hmm. It relates, I think, in large part to the book of Daniel Kahneman that gained enormous popularity Mm -hmm. of identifying system one and system two thinking, immediate, intuitive system one and slow, deliberate system two as the first cut in categorizing thinking. And so that sort of gets bantied about a lot. Now, as a result, I think some confusion has arisen that metacognition as reflecting on one's own thinking has gotten conflated with this system two thinking as slow and deliberate. But I think there's a conflation there because we can certainly think slowly and deliberatively about a topic without reflecting on our own thinking. Mm -hmm. But anyway, what I've come to is that, no, not everything that's slow and deliberate and thoughtful is metacognitive, Mm -hmm. but metacognition Mm -hmm. is indeed important for us to be thinking about and encouraging certainly in adolescents that I study, but in everybody. So how to encourage thinking about thinking is a pretty important question. Mm-hmm. And there certainly is much evidence around today of a lack of it with uh, most <laughs> of the thinking we hear ending up being pretty shallow. Mm-hmm. So what I've been thinking about lately, indeed for a long time, is how do we encourage people to be more thoughtful and reflective about their own thinking, to think about their thinking. And I I agree with you. You know, when metacognition is defined as kind of everything, then it likely means nothing. And if we equate it to things like system one, system two thinking, I think that does, it doesn't map perfectly onto what metacognition is. And so I was really pleased in your article, you made two kind of big claims about what you thought was unique or maybe understudied about metacognition. And that involves inhibitory control and dispositions. So let's start with inhibitory control. Can you talk to us about the role that you think inhibitory control plays in metacognition and what you think that is? Yes. If we go back to the definition of metacognition as uh, managing your own thinking, then the implication is that you need to manage what you don't think as well as what you do think. And that can be difficult. Mm -hmm. There is the danger that it's going to be not very deep thinking. So the inhibition part is critical. And the other is to recast metacognitive thinking as a disposition rather than a competence. Mm -hmm. So people aren't inclined to do that. And they need to have a reason to think about their own thinking. Basically, the distinction is one of thinking about metacognition as a disposition, as well as a competence, which is simply, can you do it versus Mm -hmm. do you do it? And once we think of metacognition as something that has initiative and agency, a disposition, 
we get into the whole realm of values, why should we think hard? Mm-hmm. Why, why argue is a question I ask a lot in the work I've done on argumentation. Why think deeply? And that, of course, takes us directly to the realm of epistemology, where we need to really be thinking developmentally about what a young person especially understands the nature of knowing and knowledge to be, because that's going to define the extent to which they believe that thinking deeply is worthwhile. If Mm -hmm. knowledge is simply a matter of facts that you go out and get, look up, observe, or our opinions that you freely choose, like pieces of clothing, then you have little reason really to think deeply, either alone or together. And we really need to get adolescents to that highest epistemological level of recognizing that knowledge consists not of facts or opinions, but of judgments that are situated in a framework of alternatives and evidence. Mm -hmm. And we don't get that very often. And there's certainly in cognitive and educational psychology, there's a lot of emphasis about teaching thinking strategies or learning strategies, but there the emphasis is on teaching what to do, mm-hmm. and whereas that's not why you do it, and the what is only the beginning, a small part is executing the strategy, and what's really important is seeing its value Mm-hmm. and relinquishing inferior strategies, which is the harder of the two, of gaining mastery of a new strategy versus letting go of the old one. Mm-hmm. And the other thing about metacognition as a disposition is that it implies agency, that this is something you need to decide to do, and that's where my definition of managing your own thinking comes in. Mm-hmm. You're deciding what to do and how much effort to put into it. So that's mm-hmm. where the epistemological foundation comes in mm-hmm. and also the agency. And I think there's real implication for that in education in that ultimately a teacher can only teach what a learner wants to learn, right? Mm -hmm. And there's a real paradox there because it isn't the teacher who's managing ultimately the formation of new ideas. It's the student who decides Mm -hmm. that that's what they're going to do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So much of my work has been on how to develop metacognitive disposition. Mm -hmm. And I think it's maybe worth noting what doesn't work. Mm -hmm. We started out with an idea that turned out not to work at all. Mm. Typically, of course, those are the studies that don't get published. Let me begin with the one that didn't work and then get to how we can more successfully encourage a metacognitive disposition. So our principle was let's meet people where they are, which means you don't go in and shove your view in their face saying, no, no, that's not the way to think about it. Here's a better way. And instead, you go to where they are. And our hypothesis in this work was to encourage their probing their own thinking via challenging questions. 
mm-hmm. and that that would lead, we hoped, to their recognizing the limitations of their own thinking, which hopefully would enrich it. And this, of course, is reminiscent of another very popular book now by Adam Grant, Think Again. And he talks along those lines of meeting people where they are. But we found it harder than Grant kind of suggests in his book, which is very upbeat. And in fact, that it can backfire. So just briefly, Mm -hmm. we chose as a topic the DACA issue, what should be done about the problem of young people brought to the U.S. illegally as children? Should they be allowed to stay or sent back? Now, this is an issue that doesn't submit readily to easy one-factor solutions. To really answer the question, you have to somehow bring together two competing sets of considerations, right? Mm -hmm. Those of the society and its laws and those of an innocent individual who didn't knowingly violate them. So we went out and asked community adults in shopping malls and train stations and so forth to take a position. Should they be sent back or should they be allowed to stay? And this was in New York City, which so won't surprise you that most of them said, oh, let them stay. But what's interesting is that of the group, three quarters of them offered only a single factor or consideration to justify their position. Hmm. Oh, they've worked really hard. They deserve it. So we asked, said, oh, okay, can we sort of explore your position a little bit? What about their parents who brought them to the U.S.? Should they be allowed to stay? What about the grandparents who want to keep the family united? What about aunts and uncles and other relatives who'd like to stay too? What about others not related but close to the family? So what do you think happened? Contrary to our expectation that this would get them to really tangle with the issue and go beyond this one-factor thinking, they did not tackle the complexity that these questions invoke to arrive at a more nuanced, richer position. Hmm. Instead, they simplified their stay position with 90% saying the grandparents should stay too, 80%, well, yes, let's let the aunts and uncles stay, and roughly half said unrelated persons close to the family. They all reported on a 10-point scale that, yes, they were very certain of their opinion and felt strongly and so forth. Hmm. So we were taken aback. Did our participants really believe what they were saying, a view that's at striking odds with U.S. immigration policy as well as public opinion. Mm -hmm. But in any case, our attempts to use the questioning method to enrich thinking clearly failed, which is a possibility Grant doesn't talk about. Mm -hmm. That rather than becoming elaborated and enriched, thinking became simplified and remained single-dimensional. Oh, they've worked hard. How did we explain this? We don't know for sure, but one interpretation is simply cognitive laziness, that they simply extended their stay position to broader and broader groups rather than invest the mental effort that constructing and justifying distinctions would Mm -hmm. have required. Mm -hmm. And then a second element is sort of a self-presentation, having taken a position and elaborated in their initial answer why it was the right one, 
They didn't want to appear uncommitted or inconsistent, especially to a stranger. So the easiest thing was just, well, yes, okay, let's extend the stay position to everybody. Mm -hmm. So we clearly did not achieve any richer, more nuanced, deeper thinking with that kind of method. So we need to be concerned there, certainly about a measurement issue that sometimes questioning people about where they are can change where they are, Mm -hmm. which is really a measurement issue. But it left us with this question then of, well, what would be more successful in encouraging metacognition And I have basically two answers. One I've already addressed of thinking of metacognition as a disposition, Mm -hmm. as well as a competence, which it certainly is. The inhibition part that we talked about requires a certain competence to inhibit mental representations that aren't relevant at the moment. Mm -hmm. But the other is to think of thinking as a social activity, Mm. which is not the way that we typically approach it. And that, in fact, has been the core of our intervention work with young adolescents, that Mm -hmm. discourse is a path to enriching thinking and writing. And it's basically a social process, dialogue, discourse, argumentation, that then leads to enrichment of thinking at the individual level. It's a path to Mm -hmm. better thinking and writing, which is, of course, incredibly important in Mm -hmm. educational circles. Mm -hmm. And I had one other thing I've written that is perhaps worth mentioning. The 2015 article, Thinking Together and Alone, appeared in Educational Researcher because the point I make there is very similar to the point I make in the metacognition article, that metacognition isn't always required, nor is collaboration, and it depends very much on what the task is. And Mm -hmm. in that article, I contrast argumentative discourse of the sort I've been talking about and PBL problem-based learning, which is this broadly defined construct, as you know, that can mean many things. And I come to the conclusion that in the case of PBL, that no, metacognition or collaboration is not always required. For example, if someone is learning a new, perhaps difficult concept of photosynthesis or what have you, metacognition is not necessarily pertinent to what you're trying to do. But Mm -hmm. if you are engaged in argument, on the other hand, in contrast, yes, metacognition is critical, And why? Because we don't get very far in argumentation unless we can envision, represent the other mind, make contact with it, engage with it. As we know, if we ignore the representing to ourselves and addressing what's in the other person's mind and are simply interested in going on at length from our own position and just saying it louder or more often or more elaborated um, Mm -hmm. is, of course, a a recipe for failure and the argument hasn't Mm -hmm. gone anywhere. But Mm -hmm. to relate that to metacognition, what I think happens 
is that once you are representing that, hey, this other person has his ideas, is also thinking, and I should be thinking about what he's thinking, but he is also likely envisioning what I'm thinking. Mm -hmm. So I wonder what he thinks of what I'm thinking, you know, mm -hmm. which is then can be an impetus to reflect on one's own thinking. In other words, you're trying it out and realizing that there is someone reacting to it and forming a representation of it, which can encourage you to do the same thing about your own thinking. And that's, of course, exactly what metacognition is. Mm -hmm. And one last thing that's interesting about this is we found that that process can get interiorized, again, kind of like coming from Vygotsky, to the case of a single individual when there isn't an actual dialogue and we ask a single participant to simply construct a dialogue about an issue. So suppose Jeff and, and Joan are both good arguers and they disagree on the topic of X, write a dialogue of what they might say to each other mm -hmm. if they were having a discussion about the topic. And we found that just that exercise then improves the individual essay written by the participant alone. Mm -hmm. So we think that the dialogic aspect, the thinking as social, does not need to be necessarily fully present in reality. Mm -hmm. But what's important is simply those two representations of the different perspectives and the effort to coordinate them. And that's such a nice illustration or example of the ideas that you unpack in the paper where you talk about how a key piece of metacognitive competence is this inhibition of your own views and the ability to represent someone else's views and then hold both representations and compare them. And then, of course, as you discussed, these dispositions that tie so nicely to epistemological understanding and evaluativists, people that understand that there's this, you know, kind of interplay of objective and subjective aspects of knowing, how all of that feeds into those dispositions that actually propel people to engage in that effortful thinking. So the, the kind of educational intervention you're talking about based in these Vygotsian ideas, I think illustrate the really unique contributions to metacognition that your paper makes. And so I was just really excited to hear how you've been instantiating those in educational contexts. And I think the paper has a lot more to say about different ways of thinking and the role that you see metacognition playing in each. Um, so I really encourage our listeners to check out the paper for more detail about what you discussed. And, and your work has so many implications for education that it's, it's clear to me that there's a lot that people can learn from your work and how it applies to education. Well, just because I'm so concerned about education today and everything that's wrong with it, mm -hmm. uh, to say and emphasize again that beyond all the systemic problems that we know about what's wrong with society and what's wrong with the educational bureaucracy, that it is simply not geared to the skills that adults need in, right. in collaborative reasoning, decision-making, problem finding, agency, all of this, we know, and yet it gets little attention, that 
the content that teachers today feel obliged to cover, quote unquote, is largely forgotten by students, either immediately or certainly down the road. But if Mm -hmm. we get students thinking about issues and experience thinking about them in meaningful ways together and alone, then something is retained from that experience. It lives on. It's a way of thinking alone Mm -hmm. or with others. And so it's not a nothing left, zero win situation. And so I really am not terribly optimistic, but hopeful that education can move in that direction before long. While we wrap it up there, I really want to encourage our listeners to check out your 2022 article in Educational Psychologist entitled Metacognition Matters in Many Ways. Deanna, thank you so much for talking to us about your article today. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.